Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hi, uh, my name is Melissa Leggy. I'm a third-year student joint degree with Yale Law School and Yale School of Forestry, and I'm very excited to welcome today uh, Abigail Dillon, who is the Vice President of Litigation for Climate and Energy at Earth Justice, which is the nation's original and largest nonprofit environmental law organization. At Earth Justice, Abigail uh, oversees the organization's work on climate and energy, which aims to reduce carbon pollution and transition from dirty fossil fuel-based energy sources to clean energy sources. Abigail has been at Earth Justice since 2000. Um, Before that, uh, she went to college here at Yale and then went to law school at University of California, Berkeley. Um, And in the interest of full disclosure, I had the the great pleasure of working with Abigail this summer uh, when I was a summer clerk at the Earth Justice office in New York. Um, And I'm I'm very excited to see you again and welcome you to Yale today. Thank you so much. In the interest of full disclosure, it was so great to have you with us all summer and it's it's wonderful to be here. Oh, well, thank you. Um, well, I uh, am, am really excited to, to have you here today. Um, one of the things I, I wanted to uh, talk to you about first is, is just ask you to tell us a little bit about clean energy litigation at Earth Justice, because it strikes me as just this very emerging, exciting field, um, especially um, exciting to think about the role of the public interest environmental advocate in clean energy litigation. Sure. Um, You know, I think for many people, the idea of clean energy litigation um, doesn't make intuitive sense because a lot of what litigation has been about in the public interest sphere is stopping the bad stuff. And so the question that always arises is, how can we use the law as a tool to promote the good policy solutions that we want to see, especially in the absence of congressional action and and other kinds of political solutions to the climate crisis. And, um, you know, the first thing I should say is that a lot of this litigation happens in what have for a long time been venues that um, are are too obscure, frankly, the public utility commissions. And if you'd asked me what happened at a public utility commission or even what one was five years ago, I don't think I could have answered the question very well. But these are the places where in the states we make decisions about how our electricity companies make money and what power they procure for us. And those decisions are governed by law. And they're governed essentially by a rule that these monopoly utilities should be doing the best thing for ratepayers economically. What's been transformative over the last five years is that we are now able to make not only an environmental case for investment in clean energy, but an economic case for investment in clean energy because the costs have fallen down so dramatically. And looking forward, regulators are beginning to understand that we're living in a carbon-constrained world and so that investing in a dirty old coal plant, for instance, or building a new gas plant is not going to be the best decision over time. And so what we're finding is state-by-state, commission-proceeding-by-commission proceeding, we can effectively make the case for investment in clean energy rather than dirty energy. And I should say there's a lot of work in the states defending the great progressive mandates like renewable portfolio standards, um, 
those are the kind of initiatives that have been challenged um, under constitutional provisions like the Commerce Clause. And that's a place where it's very straightforward for lawyers to go in and, and defend these initiatives as being the completely lawful um, rules that they are. Yeah, I, I um, know that there's been a great advocacy push from um, certain folks on the right, including the American Legislative Exchange Council, to target some of these clean energy policies that uh, clean energy advocates have fought hard for over the last 10, 15 years. And um, I'm wondering, should, should we be worried about that? Should we be getting, should we be getting more lawyers out there um, doing this clean energy public interest work to defend them? Um, you know, how, how, do you see, how do you see those fights going? I think we should be worried about it, and I also think we should be excited about it. Um, whenever ALEC puts the resources into a full nationwide campaign, you know that our side is actually making headway. And to me, what these fights say is that there is true anxiety about the role that not only renewable energy, but distributed re renewable energy is going to play in our future. And it's you know, it's really an effort to kill the rise of solar, to kill the rise of energy efficiency programs before they can scale up to the degree where they're powering um, the country. And, you know, to your question, should we get more lawyers out into these fights? Absolutely. Um, there is a full court press right now to be challenging the clean energy mandates, to be partnering with utilities and dismantling the programs that have really been the foundation for um, the the scale up we've seen in, in rooftop solar systems, for example. And these are seminal fights. You know, the ALEC is acting at, at a very dynamic moment where utility regulators are wondering how we integrate all these new energy resources into a grid that wasn't built to be as dynamic as these resources are. And it's also at a time where our grid is aging, and we're going to spend probably trillions of dollars to renovate it one way or another. And so as we confront these decisions about how to engineer the future, we want the voices of the future and clean energy to be at the table and to be defining the decisions rather than the fossil fuel industry who, who is really making a bid to um, keep us in the past. Is there any uh, particular um, case or area that is issue that's happening right now that you're excited about in, in sort of determining, you know, what's the future of the grid going to look like? What's the future? What, what are utilities going to look like in the future? Because, you know, obviously, if, if we want um, energy efficiency or uh, if we want to reduce the amount of energy that we're creating, uh, having a profit model that's based off of only selling more electrons is maybe not going to get us there. Um, what What's going on? Which, where should we be looking to, to look at the development of, of those issues? Well, it's hard to choose just one thing because there is um, so much happening in this sphere right now. But I think my first answer is embedded in your question, which is the utility business model. For time immemorial, this is... This is a model that relies on selling more and more electricity to increase or maintain profits. And that is not a model that's consistent with saving energy or allowing customers to generate their own energy 
or mod- moderating demand with, say, demand response programs. And so how do you incentivize um, the solutions of the future when utilities still need to make a profit and their shareholders are going to hold that to uh, hold them to that? So um, we've seen something like this movie before in the telecommunications context. And there, the solution was moving to performance-based metrics. Um, and the same thing is going to happen in the utility industry. We're already seeing it with um, Germany's second, util- second largest utility. It's already gone from being a power provider to a service provider. So you start thinking about utilities with all of their sophistication about how to run a grid, how to maintain electric reliability, how to maintain a dynamic system. That becomes the service they provide, allowing you and me to interconnect onto a platform where we can sell our own electricity and benefit from the electricity our neighbors are generating or the services they're providing, letting our smart meters go to work, et cetera. So the, I, I think you know, this, is a, this is a huge transformational move, but it's one that's actually starting to happen in a few states um, New York is one. We are starting to see a very similar conversation go forward in Hawaii, where where the largest penetration rates of solar are, and also in California. And um, those are th- three states that you could say, well, they're sui generis. They're big economies. And if you can prove up this model there, it becomes a model that's relevant nationally and globally. Um, but I do want to say we're seeing similar um, pioneering dockets on the horizon, even in coal states like Maryland. So it's it's a really exciting moment in terms of thinking through how do utilities work and how are they going to serve us in the future. I think it's probably a pretty uncomfortable moment for utility <laughs> executives who've had a, a very good idea about how to make money until now. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine they're sort of sweating a little bit over there. Um, and, and just as a, as a young person who's interested in going into this, I'm wondering if you think that there are certain um, core competencies or cert- certain things that, that me and my classmates should be um, studying or trying to learn to prepare for, for going into this um, exciting new world of, of uh, the whole redesign of the energy system. Well, this is speaking personally. Um, I came into this world through a funny portal of working on protecting public lands and endangered species. I started out um, very much on the environmental side of environmental law. And um, I have to say that energy has become this new lens for understanding how the world works. So I think there's a moment in law school where you realize um, how much the law is at play in all the ways our society is organized, and it's like having one of the veils taken away and (laughs) and the world is revealed to you. I think energy is like that, and perhaps even in a more powerful way. Um, So embracing the steep learning curve, taking an energy law class now, um, reading some of the energy trades like BNA, um, Bloomberg, paying attention to um, the history of energy and the way that energy is is shaping up now. It's fascinating once you get into it. And I, I you know, I still feel like a dilettante. It, it gets deep very fast. But 
understanding that it is fundamental to the way our society works and, and fundamental to our ability to address climate change, um, I think gives the incentive to, to get into the wonky details and then um, be able to, to, to know your way around the, the, the energy universe. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I've done a little bit of that myself. It, it doesn't necessarily make you super popular at dinner parties, but it, it is uh, <laughs> it is definitely a, a, you can dive really deep really quickly. It's, it's super fascinating. Um, so moving on to it to another wonky subject, uh, I wanted to talk about the clean power plan. It's, you know, it's it's on um, I think everyone's mind in, in the environmental field right now. It was just published in the Federal Register, and um, I'm, I'm wondering. We're going to see a lot of legal challenges, and we also have the the looming political challenge of the upcoming election and change of of, um, of president. But should we be worried, or should we be? Do you think it's should we be excited? <laughs> I think we should be both. Um, I think the most exciting thing about the Clean Power Plan is that it strengthens, actually creates a hand for us for the first time at the international negotiating table. And it's elicited corresponding action by not only China, but by other major developing economies like India and Brazil. And that's that's a first, and it's transformational. Um, you cannot say that the climate commitments that have been made by the U.S. and others will collectively add up to the climate action we need, but they do collectively provide a very solid foundation. And my hope is that we will negotiate a kind of review and revise provision this year in Paris that will have us coming back in five years and ratcheting up commitments for emission reductions. Um, Of course, key to all of this is the Clean Power Plan. And there's no question that it is a creative application of the Clean Air Act. It will come before the Supreme Court for review. The conservative justices on the court, I think, have made it very clear that they question the ability of EPA to uh, regulate in this in this way. So it will be a very contested legal fight. There are very powerful arguments as to why the Clean Air Act is a visionary act that um, that allows for what the Clean Power Plan does. But I you know, stepping away from the tea leaves, which are which are just that, mm-hmm. um, and going to the realities on the ground, I think it's very important to recognize that the Clean Power Plan is, in a way, memorializing a trend that we're seeing that's market-driven and that's in some ways, coming back to the beginning of our conversation, public interest litigation-driven. So five years ago, we did not have economics and we did not have technical solutions on our side. You just couldn't say that storage, um, which is kind of the holy grail when you're talking about intermittent renewable resources, we couldn't say energy storage was about to scale up and become affordable. Um, We couldn't say that wind or solar was comparable to the the costs of getting gas from a new natural gas plant. Now we can. And that means that the renewable um, energy sector, the clean tech sector, have a place in the market, and they have a place in our political system that is, I hope, immovable. I mean, we can't dismantle every 
policy. You could, you could imagine a very regressive political regime that could um, that could you know eradicate all of the gains that we've made in the last seven years. But but we have made very significant gains, and you know the premise of the of the clean power plan is let's operate our coal plants less. And let's ramp up the clean energy more. And that's what's happening on the ground. And I think even if the clean power plan remains the law of the land for decades to come, which I I, I hope it will, I hope we'll have complementary legislation as well, but no matter what its fate, we are already on track to achieving a shift away from coal-fired power. I think gas is getting more and more of a run for its money. And we want to accelerate that dynamic even before the clean power plan takes hold in, in 2022. So um, that's a long wind up to what I think is a bottom line. That is, the clean power plan has created a, a crucial conversation in this country. Um, and it's a conversation that's already going on. So it's up to us to make the premise of the plan succeed, whether or not the rule itself survives review. Yeah, I um, I, I read a, a blog post that you wrote about um, actually looking forward to Paris and, and the role of commitments like the Clean Power Plan in, in um, signaling to the world this this um, that we're ready to shift away from fossil fuels, and so I was just wondering if you if we could close by talking a little bit about Paris and and I know you mentioned before that um, you're hoping that through, at Paris we'll we'll say okay we're starting here and we'll renegotiate in five years. Um, what what else are you looking to uh, out of these these Paris talks the Clean Paris talks? Well, I think something quite remarkable has happened as as the tools for forecasting climate damage have become more sophisticated. And um, a friend of mine was recently telling me a story about um, modeling that MIT has pioneered where you can kind of play around, create your own climate policy, and then see how the world reacts in terms of temperature and sea level rise and so forth. And um, the story goes that a Chinese delegation saw for the first time that the U.S. could go to zero emissions and Shanghai was still underwater. What I think that underscores is how important it is for every major emitter to come to the table and address climate with a sense of urgency. And there is absolutely a moral argument that um, – the U.S. and Europe have taken up more than their fair share of the carbon budget. And it absolutely says we have to decarbonize aggressively and, and out in front of China, India, countries that are still trying to, to address enormous energy equity problems. But it, but it also changes the dynamic for economies that are um, slated to kind of bursts the carbon budget, and it brings everyone to the table. And and instead of the arguments uh, being now centered on developing countries must act, I mean, you know, whether developing countries must act, yes, they must. For developed countries like the U.S., I think the moral calculus is now about our commitments to damage and loss. That's kind of the the term of art for financing 
adaptation measures, financing the solutions to the climate harms that the most vulnerable vulnerable countries are always facing. And the measure of what we do in Paris and what we do beyond will not only be a series of uh, emission reduction commitments over time, it will be a serious commitment to putting money into the kinds of um, repair that we will need to do around the world for for better or for worse climate change is happening and its damage cannot be wholly arrested we still have time to avoid the catastrophe the catastrophe I stumble over that word mm-hmm. um, because I think the prospect is real but I do think there is time and and for the first time energy and hope to avoid the worst but we have to prepare for what will come and and we have to see this through the lens of justice not just justice in the US which is crucial but justice across the world well i think that's um it's a very powerful note to end on um i I really hope that we can see the negotiations through that frame of justice. I think it's it's very powerful, and um, and I, I from from your words or from your mouth to the the negotiators' ears, I would say. Um, but uh, thank you very much for joining us today. And um, thank you, it's my <laughs> privilege. The views and opinions expressed by the interviewers and interviewees as part of On the Environment do not necessarily reflect the views of the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy, its affiliated faculty, staff, or supporters.